All right, I'd like to read our text one more time, and as we read it, I want us to remember that Matthew, the author of this gospel, was there. He was sitting there. He is an eyewitness to what was happening. Matthew 26, verse 26 to 30. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood uh, which of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remissions of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink it of the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Today, and Lord willing, the next two weeks, we are going to talk about one of the most common and controversial subjects of the Christian faith. It goes by many names. I'll just throw a few at you. Some of you have heard it described as communion. Some of you have heard it described as holy communion. Some of you have heard it described as the Eucharist. Others call it the Lord's Table. Others call it the Lord's Supper. Uh, Today we're going to call the title of today's message, The Meaning of the Lord's Supper. And honestly, when I think about it, the whole thing is really just a shame that something that the Lord meant to unite his people has divided his people so much. And the division really comes down to Jesus' words as recorded in the Gospels when he says, this is my body and this is my blood. Here in Matthew chapter 26, it's the night before Jesus is going to die on the cross and he is celebrating what all of us call, no matter your position on this, the Last Supper. And it's important to understand that The Last Supper was a Passover meal filled with, and it's a word we're going to use constantly today, filled with a lot of symbolism that that the apostles, being Jews, would understand. At the Passover Supper, the Jews remembered something that had happened about 1,400 or 1,500 years earlier than the apostles' time and Jesus' time, what God did when he rescued his people through the prophet Moses from slavery in Egypt. And in the scriptures, Egypt represents a type of sin. That's why you'll hear sometimes Christian people say, listen, I am not going back to Egypt. I got a lot of problems, but I'm not going back to Egypt. And what they do in the Passover is they remember the last of the ten plagues that God brought upon the Egyptians So Pharaoh and even his own people were like, let them go, man. They're killing our country here. So Pharaoh would let God's people go. Well, the night before they left Egypt, God said to his people, "Uh, I would like you to kill a lamb, and I would like you to take the blood of the lamb. You're going to get to eat the lamb, but take the blood of the lamb, and I want you to put it over the doorpost of your house. So when the destroyer comes by in the night, the destroyer will look for the blood. We often sometimes say it's like the blood of Jesus over our heart, those of us who've put our trust in Jesus. So when the destroyer comes by, he will see the blood. If there is no blood over the doorpost, then the firstborn male in your house will die. And it's like a a movie preview 
uh, with, with, of the judgment of God. And there would be an experience for each house. Either each house would have a dead lamb or a dead son. And it's interesting, it, was, it applied to everybody in Egypt. Even if you were a Jew, you had to do it. And there was an element of faith involved where you're saying by where you're putting the blood on the door, I'm trusting God that he's going to keep his word and he's going to pass over my house. And so the, the Passover meal was something that they remembered uh, this event for. And God, interestingly enough, the, the Jewish people back in that day and, and, and some even this day, there a lot of celebrations and a lot of joy and, and remembering the things that God had, had done for them. They would call them the feasts. And central to the Passover meal was food. Some of you are like, yeah, I'm there. Uh, now, some people have told me who are Jewish, they don't like the food. But uh, some people, it was food, especially a number of things. But we want to just highlight a few things. Uh, unleavened bread. Unleavened. Leaven was a type of sin. So they wanted to purge their house of, of, of sin. Uh, bitter herbs because of the bitterness that they experienced in, uh, in slavery under Pharaoh. Uh, there would be a, a lamb uh, that would, they would sacrifice. Later on, they would take, in Jesus' time, they took their lambs uh, to the temple, and there would be four cups of diluted wine, all very symbolic, there's that word again, very symbolic of what had happened uh, on that Passover night. So, uh, again, it's important to remember and to see that the Last Supper was a Passover meal. Remember last week we saw that in three times, in three verses, the word Passover was used in each sentence. So, Matthew is really emphasizing for us this was a Passover celebration, and Jesus uses the symbolism of the Passover to show that God's Son himself is the sacrificial lamb that will save the people of God. Now, it's very interesting when you read about Jesus, Jesus did not uh, ask us to remember certain things. I don't want to ruin the economy, but he didn't tell us to make a big deal over Christmas. And for us, probably, that's the, the biggest th thing that people in our country make a big deal over. He didn't really even tell us to make that big a deal over his life, although both his birth and his life were important. He wouldn't, be, wouldn't have come if he wasn't born. He wouldn't be a perfect sacrifice if he didn't live a perfect life. He didn't even tell us to really remember the miracles that he did. They really demonstrated his claims to be God and his own compassion. Uh, but, but what he did he tell us to remember was his death. That's what he told us we needed to remember. And we'll talk about that in our third study on this. And as he often did, Jesus is using symbolism, metaphors, to explain his death to the apostles and to explain it to all of the Bible readers throughout history, which, of course, would include us here this morning. Now, three of the four gospel writers, uh, there's four gospel writers, three of the four record this particular part of the Last Supper John, in chapters 13 through 17, we get more of what's actually being said at the dinner uh, than these. And then the Apostle Paul also records this. We'll talk about that in a bit in 1 Corinthians. And each of the gospel writers record how Jesus will establish a new covenant. And he will do this by offering his life 
as a sacrifice to God for the sins of the people. And for centuries, they had gone to the temple and they had sacrificed animals for sins. They would put their hand on the animal and they would symbolically transfer their sin from themselves to the animal in which the animal then would be killed in the temple and that would be symbolic of their forgiveness of sins. So let's, let's jump right in here, Matthew 26, 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread. Now this would be most likely the bread of affliction, about the affliction of God's people as slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. And he blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples. Now, Bible scholars debate if Judas is still there or not. Uh, You know, years ago I thought yes, now I think no. Probably within six months I'll just say it depends upon which day of the week it is. Um, And so he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. Now, if you're with us last week, we talked about what the Last Supper was like, and they're kind of casually, they're really on the ground, they're leaning over, it seems like a casual dinner with these, with these 12 guys. I, I am struck by the lack of formality of the whole thing. I'm struck by the simplicity of the whole thing. I'm struck how matter-of-factly Matthew just mentions it. He just says... As they were eating. Now that you would never mention yourself, that's just not the way that they wrote it. So that's why these doesn't write as we were eating. It says as they were eating. So picture the scene. We don't know who's there besides the 12 apostles. There may only be 11 there now. We don't know how many family members are there. So just picture some guys and they're, you know, a bunch of guys together and they're having a party. They're having a party. Good food, right? They're drinking wine. Some of you are like, wine? No, we drink beer, okay? Smoking good cigars. No, they're not smoking good cigars. By the way, I've never smoked a cigar in my life. But um, a lot of my friends, they're like, I don't know. I don't get it. But anyway, they're like, oh, you got to have a good cigar anyway. So, and later on, we'll see they're singing. Who knows what 12 guys singing like in an upper room was actually like. We don't don't know. We probably don't want to go there. And so, um, but what strikes me is it doesn't seem very religious to me. It just seems like all of a sudden he's, he's like, hey, you know, he stands up, takes the bread, and he blessed it and broke it. Now, as the host of the meal, he would have already blessed the meal. So they're like, you know how it is? Like, do you ever, we're so bad with saying grace. You know how people are like, did we say grace? You know, like you're wondering, you're like, yeah, very meaningful, wasn't it? And so, and so maybe some of them are thinking, didn't he say, does he forget he said grace already? So he, he gets up and he, and he starts to bless this bread that, that he has. It must seem very odd to the apostles what's, what's going on. Now, in John 6, verse 35, Jesus said, we call it the bread of life discourse. He says, I am the bread of life. And once again, he's using the same metaphor, but in a different way. Uh, And here, Jesus equates the bread to himself, to his actual body. He says, this this bread is my actual body. That's what he's saying it. Now, in the ancient world, bread meant life. You you could not stay alive without bread. And Jesus' point to them is that you cannot have eternal life without me. So you can't have this life to them without bread, and he's teaching them about eternal things. 
You can't have eternal life. When the Bible speaks of eternal life, it's referring to heaven. You can't have it without him. Now, when Moses and the people of God left Egypt and they were in the wilderness, there was this strange bread-like substance that came down from heaven called manna. And you're like, what is it? That's exactly what manna means. What is it? <laughs> and, so, and so the manna came down from heaven and it was on the ground each day and it was only good for one day except the day before the Sabbath, which they wouldn't gather the manna, and that manna was good for two days. But what did they need to do? God provided the manna. They needed to gather the manna. In other words, they needed to respond to God's provision. It's not just a matter of God didn't do home delivery, you know, didn't have an app for something like that, you know, manna, the manna app or something like that. You actually had to go out And you had to get it yourself. You had to respond to the provision. And now Jesus is offering eternal life to anybody who will receive him. But he says you have to take. That's what you have to do. You have to take the offer of this bread of life, of the broken body of Jesus. You have to take, receive God's provision for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Now, there's something very interesting here uh, for you who like to study such things. In Aramaic, one word is missing from the original. They, they spoke Aramaic, and, and well, the original was in Greek, but, but there's one word missing from the way they spoke Aramaic, and it's actually the word is. So here it's, we read in our Bibles, take, eat, this is my body. That makes sense to us. Originally, Jesus probably would have said, take, eat this, my body. Now, perhaps we might say, Jesus is saying, take it and eat it, this represents my body. Take it and eat it, this stands for my body. Take it and eat it, this is symbolic of my body. Now, the, the apostles of, uh, were Jews, and uh, while they would be shocked at what Jesus said, as the people were in John chapter 6 in the Bread of Life discourse, they wouldn't have taken him literally. Because in their law, eating human flesh and drinking blood of any sorts was against the law. So Jesus wouldn't be telling them to sin, would he? No. And, and if he actually turned it into blood and Jesus drank the blood, guess what? We should all be sleeping in late, right? Because, because then Jesus is a sinner on the cross. And that, that's not what he is at all. The Passover meal, the host, would, would, would typically pray something like this. This is the bread of affliction our ancestors ate when they came out of Egypt. Now, again, 1,400, 15 years earlier. Jesus would say, this is the bread of affliction our ancestors ate. How many of you think they were eating the same loaves of bread that Moses and the people ate 1,400 years ago? Any of you think that? No, he's not, gonna, he's not that. It's symbolic. Besides the fact that when Jesus says, this is my body, eat it, they're not like passing around Jesus because he's standing right there. And so they would not be considering this to be anything other than symbolic, not to be crude. This is symbolism, not cannibalism. And Jesus is breaking the bread of affliction, probably 
representing the fact that he is going to take upon himself the affliction of the slavery of sin, the, the, the slavery and enemy of death on the cross for the people of God. And as we say that the kingdom of God is truly uh, inaugurated or um, brought into being or ushered in by Jesus dying on the cross. Now, some of you are probably sitting here and saying, I get it, you, your church meets in a warehouse, so you got to talk like this. But I don't want you to underestimate the, uh, the symbolism that Jesus used, the fact that he used symbolism quite a bit in his teaching. You cannot miss that. The same night, John records to us in John chapter 15, Jesus says to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. Now, do you think any of them thought they turned into trees at that moment? No, that means that if he's the vine and the branches come off the vine, that without the vine, there is no what? There is no life. You cut the vine, it doesn't matter how, how wonderful the fruit on the vine, the, the, the branches are, or the fruit or the flowers or something like that, it, it, it's going to die. So he means that we derive our life and our fruitfulness, that's a sign of serving God, from Jesus. Jesus also says that he was the door or the gate. So how many of you picture Jesus being on hinges and having a door handle? He said he was the good shepherd. Excuse me, Jesus, you're a carpenter. What do you mean you're the good shepherd? Right? You're a carpenter. Jesus said that he was the cornerstone, meaning he's the foundation of our faith. He's the foundation of the church. Jesus said he was the morning star. Jesus said he was the fountain. Jesus says he was the lamb. Jesus says he was the rock. We could go on and on and on. All types of metaphors to help make the point and help the listening audience to understand. He's giving them visual pictures of what's going on. Jesus is the bread of life because, in John 6, because he nourishes our souls, keeps us alive, and gives us eternal life. Here, he's saying, I am the broken bread, symbolic of the violent death that he is about to undergo. Now, there's some things that are noticeable about all of the Last Supper accounts, um, one is that, or at the Last Supper, is that, that, that one is there is no bitter herbs. Now, it, it could be, uh, maybe they just don't mention it, or it could be that Jesus says, is saying to us that the kingdom of God will take away, which is being ushered in, the kingdom of God will take away all bitterness. That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? There's also, there's no lamb. That was the whole thing. You know, the guys came for the meat, right? <laughs> There's no lamb. Now, as we go later on in our studies in Matthew, we're going to have some various theories. Uh, one is that some people think that they ate the Passover meal a day early so that when all the lambs were being sacrificed in the temple, that was the same time Jesus was being sacrificed on the cross. But we'll have to talk about that later on. Again, that's because Jesus is the true Passover lamb. And like the people of God, 
in Egypt, those who put their trust in the promises of God, in in the provision of God for sins, will have their sins passed over by God. And so if the blood of Christ is written over the door of your heart, your sins will be passed over when you meet the Lord. And because of the death of Jesus Christ, we will no longer need um, a symbolic sacrifice of a lamb because now in the Lord's table, we have an unbloody symbol. So Jesus links okay, the Passover and the Lord's Supper together. Both of them point to the sufficiency of God's promises. And here, Jesus points to the sufficiency of his death on the cross. So in a Passover meal, the Jews were looking backwards. But now Jesus is changing the Passover meal and telling them, not only are we looking backwards, but we're also looking ahead and it's at the Lord's table. We're looking ahead to when the lamb is sacrificed, the lamb of God, and the Lord's table, we look back. Verse 27 and 28, the symbolism continues. Then he took the cup and gave thanks. Now I'm going to try and pronounce this uh, Greek word for you. And so you can see uh, anybody who's Greek, you might want to raise your hand. You can talk to them after the service for the proper pronunciation. He gave thanks. They euharistau. Eucharistau. Now, if you look at the spelling, it looks like Eucharistio. Does that word sound familiar to you at all? All right, so let's, we'll come back to that in a second. Some of you are, are like, yes, I knew it. And others are like, oh, right, okay. Then he took the cup and gave thanks. He Eucharisted and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. It's offered, they have to what? They have to drink. They have, to, they have to respond to what he's saying. For this is my blood. Now, there's an element of faith. It's not just, otherwise you're just drinking wine. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed. Some versions say poured out. This is classic Old Testament language. That's his death on the cross. It is shed for many. That's a very important concept. It, it's, it's not shed for a few, but it's not shed for all. It's shed for many for the remission or the taking away of sins. Some versions say, simplify it, say, for the forgiveness of sins. Now, there was four cups of wine. This is probably uh, from Exodus 6. You can read about it there. This is probably the third cup called the cup of blessing or the cup of redemption, now, just for one second, can I really just do a public service announcement right now? Uh, please forget all that Holy Grail silliness, unless your name is Monty Python. Uh, right? um, the, the emphasis is not on the cup, all right? The emphasis is on Jesus. And, and the word for gave thanks is where the word Eucharist comes from. That's simply the, the English translation of the word Eucharist is to give thanks. Now, it's interesting. Some people, when you mention the word Eucharist, they want to worship the word. And I always say, you want to worship giving thanks? Other people want to run away from the word 
And I'm like, you want to wait, run away from giving thanks? Why don't we just come to the center and, and be biblical about it? Because properly considered, all followers of Jesus should give thanks since the shedding of Jesus' blood and our putting our trust in his death on the cross in our place, we'll talk about that in a second, opens the way to God. Now, some people will be like, oh, blood is gross, man. Like, what? like, like what's up with that? I think it's more symbolism. Blood is gross, right? So is sin. Sin is gross to God. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Others of versions say there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, they didn't know what we know about medical stuff like we do today, but they knew that if you had no blood, you were not going to live. And so, again, we see symbolism. Jesus saying, if you, if you trust in my promise, if you grab the cup by faith, judgment will pass over you. So Jesus is using Old Testament, what we call covenantal language, familiar to the apostles who were raised Jewish, as Jesus continues to point the apostles and us to his death. Moses had written these words many centuries earlier when the people came out of Egypt, uh, Exodus 24, 6 through 8. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And they, the people, said, watch this, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. How do you think that went for them? How's that that going for some of us? I know it's not going so well for me all the time. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, that's very rare, and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. So the blood uh, cleansed them from sin and set them apart to serve the Lord. But they continued in their sinful ways. And probably about... 850 years later or so, uh, around 600 years before the cross, Jeremiah writes these words, the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, uh, verse 31 through 34. Behold, he writes, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant, which they broke, the one we just read about in Exodus, though I was a husband to them. God was their husband. Israel was his wife. They cheated, but they cheated on him. Uh, But I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. No longer is it just going to be something that's on a scroll or something that they heard about. He says, I'm going to put it actually with inside of you, this new covenant. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. You know, back in the day, they didn't really consider people knew the Lord. They considered, you know, the great prophets knew the Lord and some of the kings knew the Lord. But the the rank and file people didn't consider themselves to have a a real relationship with God. And and Jeremiah says, there's going to come a day with this new covenant. That's all going to change. 
everybody is going to have the opportunity to know God personally and have his law written on their heart. And so he says, they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Everybody, says the Lord. Why? For or because I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. So clearly here, in, to the apostles, to, to any Jew listening to Jesus, Jesus is making the claim that his death on the cross will inaugurate the new covenant that the prophet Jeremiah spoke of 600 years earlier. How? By one dying as a substitute for many, for the forgiveness of their sins and to give them a new heart, a heart that is towards God. Jeremiah describes it going from a hard heart to a soft heart. Now, Jesus spoke a lot about how people should live their lives in service to God, but he also spoke a lot about the divine help uh, to, that we all need to know God personally and the divine help that we all need for the forgiveness of sins. And Jeremiah knew 600 years earlier that the new covenant was coming, and now Jesus is teaching the apostles that it will be brought about by his death on the cross. Now, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, thank you so much for coming. We really appreciate it. I do hope you will continue to come uh, to hear more about this stuff. My desire is to speak simply, and there's some things that you can only, you know, simple, get down so simple. Uh, but you may wonder, um, if God loves us, why doesn't he just wipe away our sins? Why, why does he just do that? If you think that, I will challenge you on this, how much do you really know about love? You know, when people say, you know, we're in love. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> right? You know, and uh, you know, I'm excited now. I'm doing a, a couple of premaritals. and very exciting. I love it. I'm so happy for them. They're two great couples, and, and they're getting married next month, and they're like, oh, we're in love. It's great. It's great. But, you know, there's going to come a point in time, those of you who are married, you don't need to go tell them. They know. I told them. Reality's going to set in. (laughs) Reality's going to set in. And um, not my wife, not you, babe. Um, (laughs) So so reality's going to set in. And, and, And when you know something about love, you know that love costs you. You know that love calls you to bear the sins of your mate, to, to, to absorb the sins of your mate. You know that if you have children, they break your heart constantly, and, they're going, and, and loving them costs you something. You just can't love, really love anybody without it having some cost to you. Remember, forgiveness always costs the one who does the forgiving, Love always costs the, costs the one who, who's on the short end of the stick, if you will. And God loves you so much, John three sixteen that he was willing, you know, the one they hold up at the football games in the end zone, that he was willing to give of his son, his one and only son, to die for your sins. Jesus loves you so much that he himself was willing to die for your sins, that his, your sins and my sins cost him his life. Why? Because he wants to absorb our sins. He wants to bear the cost of our sins because our sins are against God. 
He wants us to bear the, he wants to bear the cost of our sins so we can be forgiven, have them erased, be reconciled to God. We can stand in the presence of a holy God. That's why if you're not a follower of Jesus, you might hear this bizarre, bizarre expression that we have in the Christian faith. And it goes like this. Oh, we celebrate Jesus' death. Like, what are you, glad he's dead? Man, what's up with that? We celebrate his death because heaven is based upon what Jesus did for us. Heaven, going to heaven, is based upon God absorbing our sins which were committed against him. It's not based upon what we did or we did not do. All we need to do is what? We need to respond. Like they needed to take the bread, like they needed to take the cup. We need to respond with faith and trust in what Jesus Christ has done for us. Now, Bible students, you you might notice how Jesus brings together the redemptive history of the Exodus with the prophetic word of the prophets. Isaiah, the prophet, wrote this 700 years before the cross. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken by God and afflicted. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. 700 years in advance, Isaiah is telling us what's happening at the cross. Verse 7, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter. It's probably why John the Baptist said, hey, everybody, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Isaiah 53, 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and he has put put him to grief, maybe bitterness, when you make his soul an offering for sin. Same chapter, verse 12. Therefore, he says, I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death. And like the first Passover, help the people anticipate the promised land, the Lord's table reminds us to joyfully anticipate the kingdom of God. Verse 29, same at the Last Supper still. But I say to you, Jesus says, I will not drink of the fruit of, of the vine, talking about the wine, from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Verse 30, and when they had sung a hymn, usually at the end of the meal they would sing Psalm 115 to 118, so you might want to go home today and yank out Psalm 118 and picture Jesus and the apostles walking out, okay, songs of praise and thanksgiving and trust, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So here we see that Jesus clearly, in the earlier verses, anticipates his death. But Jesus is also very clear, I will see you again. I will see you again. That's why I'm so, like, I understand there's the death of Jesus, but sometimes we're too morbid about it. Because he just said, he goes, I'm not going to drink this fruit wine again until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus is excited. He's ready for this. Sometimes we're just like, oh, communion. I'm so miserable. Instead of like, oh, man, we're going to see him again. We're going to see him again. And so he says, we're going to all be together again in my father's kingdom. Jesus makes a vow. I won't have another drink 
until we meet again. The only drink Jesus is going to go have now is he is going to the cross to drink the cup of God's wrath. What is that? Picture a cup full of wrath, God's wrath against sin. It's not a temper tantrum. It's his anger towards sin. And the picture is what? Of him pouring the whole thing out on Jesus. All of the sins poured out on Jesus. And so that's what he will undergo uh, at the cross. We'll see as we go further along in Matthew's gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all make the point that at the Lord's table, we look back to his death in our place for our sins, but we also look forward to an eternity with Jesus. It's not until... Jesus ascends into heaven and the Apostle Paul is converted uh, that on the road to Damascus. And later on, we get in 1 Corinthians, Paul gets from the Lord his instruction on this sacrament. But it's very clear that the cross, when you read the scriptures, the cross was the mission of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself makes it the centerpiece of his life. Now, this could be a vow not to drink the fourth cup until Exodus 6, 7, where where the Lord says, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Until then, the Lord's Supper reminds us of a greater exodus for all who have put their trust in Jesus. But that exodus is not from Egypt to the promised land. That exodus is from this world to the kingdom of God. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, the Lord Jesus extends to you a glorious invitation to the kingdom. He's provided everything. You simply need to respond how? Jesus said you need to repent and believe. What does that mean? Repent is to turn. All we like sheep have gone astray. Okay, You need to repent. You need to turn to God. And you need to put your trust in. In Jesus, he said, and the Lord has laid on him the sin, the iniquity of us all. And if you do that, in this simple moment here, you can become a child of God and you can come into the kingdom of God. That's all you need to do. Sit in your chair as the music plays and just say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm not going to get to heaven without you. I'm simply putting my trust in you. And with your help, I'm going to live for you but I know I can't get myself into heaven without you. I know I can't live this life without you, but I'm gonna put my trust in you. I wanna grab the bread. I wanna grab the cup. I'm gonna grab the provision, God, you have made by your son's death on the cross in my place. And for a follower of Jesus, let us remember that the bread and the cup are profound symbols of the greatest event in history in this life and the greatest event in history in the next life, when we will be reunited with the Lord. And that, my dear friends, is something that is worth joyfully singing about every day as long as the Lord gives us breath. Well, let's stand.